Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. I want us to think of, about a couple of things before we get into uh, this next section of John 14. If you weren't with us last week, we'll try to get the podcast up quicker, quickly and, and soon. And because John 14 is just has so much meat in it that um, if we're not careful, we just skim through it because we've read it so many times. And, 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 and what's worse in John 14 is there's a couple of verses. We'll see two of them here today that get pulled out of its context and it doesn't um, and it, it means therefore something totally different than what it was intended to mean and it leads us to fear instead of to rest and so um, what we're going to really wrestle with today in this section of John 14 is how do we how do we really get to know God how do we really get to know the heart of the Father how do we get to know him H- who is he uh, you know, for me, uh, most of my development was, I think I have a good understanding of Jesus. He's, he's the one that we think of as, you know, the brother, the one who, you know, is, is, he loves us so much because, well, he died for us. I mean, you got to kind of love somebody in order to die for him. Um, and we think of the Holy Spirit, we, at least for me, was, you know, the one who kind of came alongside. He was the encourager, but he was also the one who, you know, stepped on your toes and told you about all the times that you messed up. Uh, at least that was, again, uh, what, what I was taught, not what the scriptures taught. But, um, but, the, but then it came to the Father. Who is the Father? Who is God the Father? And so most of my developmental understanding of God the Father was really rooted in his interactions in the scripture, which most of the interactions in the scripture with God the Father are taken out of you know the Old Testament, and you have some pretty dynamic, pretty uh, crazy interactions in the Old Testament with God um, and people. Um, you have him in eliminating entire people groups because of things. You have him killing a guy who was going to because the um, the Ark of the Covenant was tipping over, and he was just trying to put it back, you know, just trying to help out. And you have him him being God sending. Israel through 40 years of wilderness because they just didn't believe the report of a couple of the spies. They took the majority report instead of the minority report. And so, um, what this God guy, I mean, you better watch out because one little wrong move and you are, you know, getting shipped off to the island and there's no fun. You are not could enjoy it, enjoy him. You're far from him. You're distant from him. And the only way to get close to him, well, let's read the Psalms. How did David get back close to God after he sinned? Well, he, 
He cried out. He asked for forgiveness. He begged for the Holy Spirit to be returned to him on and on. And so what did we do? Or at least I do for most of my life. When I realized of my, that I had sinned and had upset God the Father, then, you know, come down to the altar at the end of the service with these big crocodile tears and say, God, please don't leave me. Please don't forsake me. Please take me back. Because God, in his swivel chair of justice, had swiveled away from me, turned away from me. He still loved me, kind of, I guess. He still, I was still in the family, capital F family, but I certainly wasn't close to him at dinner time. I certainly wasn't, you know, you know he, he wasn't holding me tight when I was going to sleep at night. Because, I mean, look at what all I had done. So my development of my understanding of God the Father was rooted, rooted out of scriptures, out of the scripture, inspired scripture, but completely lack of understanding of, first of all, what Jesus had done and a lack of understanding of the covenants that these people were under. And so I had developed personally, and maybe you can attest to this in some sort of way, Jesus is the God who loves me, who died for me. Man, what were I, where would I be without him? The Holy Spirit is the one who encourages me, who, who's with me and, and, you know, slaps my hand when I do something wrong. Out of love. But the Father is the one who, you know, I just can never make happy. I can't ever impress. I can't ever satisfy. I can't ever um, enjoy that was, for me, my understanding of, of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was like God was there ready with his lightning bolts of judgment and death. And if it wasn't for Jesus who stood in the way, kind of like who in the Old Testament, when God was ready to just strike Israel, and I, I'm just going to start over. Was it Moses? I'm gonna start, let's just you and me start this thing all over. Remember this? And Moses is like, no, please. And God changed his mind. Well, that same imagery I have or had when it came to where I stood with God. But this time, instead of Moses, it was Jesus. Jesus was standing in the way like, no, 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 Let, don't, don't do that. To, don't, don't just destroy him. Let me kind of stand in the gap and I'll take their wrath. And so the wrath of God was satisfied in the son, which is true. But if God really had his way, oh, he really would have my number. And so I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. The Holy Spirit, you know, there's a lot of questions about him and and what that all looks like. But I know he's a comforter and he's for me, not against me. But the father... Who is this God the Father guy other than the one who is this cosmic, never able to be satisfied, ticked off eternally because of, well, who I am? And so I might as well, what, not even try anymore to get closer to him, to love him, because how could I ever? And I'm afraid that some level of that dynamic, it might maybe more extreme for one than the other, but some level of that dynamic we can all in some way, shape, form, or fashion connect with. Jesus, the one clearly who loves us, he died for us. The Holy Spirit, he's there to comfort us, encourage us. But man, don't leave me alone with the Father. 
goes, I'm toast if it's just me and him. So what is the truth? Put yourself into Israel's shoes. We're trying our best as we go through John to imagine what it was like to be there, to be them, to be the disciples in this scenario at the Last Supper. Because remember, this was a conversation, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15 of Jesus and his disciples at a dinner. It's a long conversation, several chapters of conversation. And Western Americans weren't a part of that conversation of 2,000 years later. And so for us to really reap the benefit of what this conversation is about, what it, the meaning for us today, we really need to try to put ourselves into their thinking and what they were thinking. So as an Israelite, what would your view, your understanding of God, well, first of all, you didn't really understand there was a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so much, but what was your view and understanding of God as an Israelite? Any thoughts? Just from what we know from a taskmaster of sorts, a d demanding based on the law, the expectations of the law. Do this and be blessed. Do this and be cursed. What else? What are the thoughts? So, like, if you were trying to put your self into their shoes, what, what would your view of God be? Not so much, again, ours, but theirs. Wrath. Okay. Uh, uh, I mean, could, could you ever walk by the temple and not see the blood being filling the gutters of the temple? Because there's always have to be appeasement for what? For sin. And in, the appeasement is of his wrath in, in your mind. So there's always this, this uh, distance. There's always this, if it wasn't for these animals, then where would we be with this guy? Sort of a deal. Does the yeah? When God's chosen people, everybody else is trash. Yeah, that's definitely true. We are God's chosen people; everyone else is trash. But even in that truth, because they certainly you know had that thinking, uh, even the early early believers had that. Which maybe one day we'll go through the Book of Acts and see some of what's going on there. But the early Christians told Peter in Acts nine, "You went where?" Uh, to Gentile's house. What? They didn't get it. And they were Christians. Um, so even in that, as Brandon beautifully said, do, do you get the vibe of intimacy between the first century Jew and God? Do you get a vibe of intimacy? Absolutely not. At least I don't. Now, the ones who saw through the 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 the, uh, the shadow of the law to see the Christ, maybe they did, you know. But I don't. From the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, from the religious leadership, I don't get a vibe of intimacy with the Father from them. I get a vibe of. We have finally figured out a way through the Pharisaical Judaism to accomplish the Mosaic law. And if you're not a part of us, you're against us and, you know, uh, off with your head in essence. But you don't get this vibe of, we know the Father. We know him. 
like we know our own selves. You get a vibe of if we don't perform and execute this Mosaic law to the best of our ability, we have no hope of knowing him. Again, how many people could even stand in God's presence? One man, one time a year, the high priest. And quite frankly, I don't even know if that still happened after the Exodus, after Leviticus, uh, not Leviticus, uh, Lamentations. I'm not even sure if that even happened anymore because uh, Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations as he sees the Shekinah glory of God depart from above Israel and is gone. Ichabod is written over the city and the, Samar- the, 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 the uh, Assyrians or Babylonians, whoever it was, come in and conquered and destroyed it. I'm not even sure if after that there was any record of the Spirit of God, the presence of God coming down into the Holy of Holies after it was all rebuilt. Maybe it was. I'm, I'm, I'm not certain. But you just don't get this vibe of intimacy with him. So if you don't get this vibe of a personal knowledge of God and you have a whole people group chosen and you have a whole world that's confused, if you were God and you really wanted the people of your creation to know you, what better way than to become one of them? to be one of them so that they could see with their very own eyeballs who the Father really is, who he's really like, what he's really like, what his heart really beats like. And I'm going to submit to you before we even get into this section of John 14 that one of the many purposes, purpose I, purposes of Jesus Christ, many purposes, but one of which is for us to get to know the Father. You say, but He's the Son. Well, yes, He is. But He is God, and they are one. But His purpose is for us to get to know the heart of the Father, something that no man knew at that time. So let's jump in here. We're going to read the first six verses that we tackled last week just very quickly to get a rolling sort of jump into verse 7, which we're picking up uh, on today. So at this last dinner, Jesus, last supper it's called, this is the night of his arrest. Jesus is uh, um, beginning to tell them more plainly about his, his, his arrest. He just sent Judas out to go do his thing, but none of them understand it. John even said in chapter 12 or 13, none of us really knew what was going on. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that we started to be like, oh, This was all what Jesus was talking about. But they're starting to be troubled, concerned, and Jesus is encouraging them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So even from the beginning of the chapter, he's starting to equate himself and God. Believe in him. Believe in me. For in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for for I go and prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. We're not going to get into all the depth of this. We talked about it last week. But in essence, he's talking, I believe, about on the cross. He's going to make a place inside of every human being, a clean place, because sin is removed for anyone and everyone who would believe in him. He would enter into them so that where I am there you may be also. Verse 4. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas was like, "Uh, no, we don't. Where are you going? 
We don't know the way. And then the most powerful, we sang it today in one of our verses, uh, uh, songs. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the only way, this is last week, for us to experience this intimacy with the Father that had been uh, uh, an illusion, or I mean had been a, a fairy tale up until this point in human history, was through the work of Jesus. Why? Because his death ended sin, which stood between you and him, and his resurrection ended death, which stood between you and him. And so his one work on the cross and in his resurrection ended what stood between you and, and the Father. And so it's only through him. Now, verse 7, where we pick up today. Um, the disciples are growing weary. They're, they're, uh, uh, they're concerned. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm the way. And he continues, verse 7, saying, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now look. This is some pretty bold statement of a man to say, from now on, because you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you had known me, what does that suggest from Jesus? If you really had known me, what does that suggest? To me, it suggests that they obviously were missing something. They were missing who Jesus really was. It suggests to me that they don't know Jesus or, you know, in that time and space, didn't know Jesus. What did they, and I've, I've been encourage you to think this. I'm not saying if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian, but I'm encouraging you to think about what they were actually thinking Jesus came to do. What was Jesus's, to them, what was Jesus's mission as the Messiah to set up a what? Earthly kingdom on earth. I, I think that is still their thinking. It's still their their preconceived notion, an earthly Messiah, an earthly king that is going to earthly free them from the Roman oppression, and they will have their earthly Israel just like they had back with King David and King Solomon. Their preconceived ideas of Jesus being the Messiah, I'm submitting, were completely wrong. And Jesus, I think, is echoing that. If you really knew me, you would know the Father but you don't really know me. You think that me, the Messiah, has come simply to establish some earthly kingdom. And so Philip, you know, this this chapter, it's really, this whole scene, not just chapter 14, it's really radical. You've got Judas the betrayer mentioned, you've got John mentioned, you've got Peter mentioned, you just had, who was it? Uh, Thomas mentioned. Now you have another disciple. Like we almost... But then we're going to have another disciple in a second. I think six of the 12 are mentioned in this one dinner. It's pretty dynamic, this interaction that he has. I don't think anywhere else you have this dialogue with Jesus and his disciples like this. So he says, if you have from now on, you know him and have seen him, him being who? The father. So Jesus is introducing this idea that from this point on, something that Israel has never known, you will know the father. Now rewind with me to Jeremiah before we go to the next verse. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31, where Jeremiah writes down what the Lord says. The Lord says, the day will come that I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this new covenant will not be anything like the old covenant. 
that when I led them up by the hand out of, Israel, out of Egypt, though I was their husband, and they betrayed me, they, they, they sinned against me. In this new covenant, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no one will teach their neighbor, teach their friend, know the Lord, know the Lord, know God, know God. You need to know him. Here's how you know him. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. That's the new covenant. And Jesus is saying from now on, you will know him like you have never known him before. How? Because you've seen him. How have they seen him? How, when did we see the father? I hear, uh, who, who's about to ask? Philip is about to ask. I hear Philip, his eyes, his, his mind thinking, did I miss that? <laughs> Was I taking a nap? I know you went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and I got left out on that. But, but what happened when we saw the father? And so Philip, I can see it happening. Lord, show us the father. We missed it. And that's enough for us. If you just show us the Father, that's enough for us. You won't have to do anything more. Well, when I read that, I ask the question, what does he mean by it's enough? What's enough? What's enough? It, it is enough. What does he mean? It's enough for us. This reminds me of some of my late night conversations with Drake as we're praying to go to sleep. And, uh, you know, he'll ask about God. He'll ask about, you know, when does he get to see God and all this sort of stuff. And I try to explain to him, I said, you know, as best as I know how, you know, well, God is not a human being that we can see and touch and feel like, you know, you see your, t- your daddy and your mommy, et cetera. And, um, and he says, uh, so he's invisible. And I said, yeah, certainly. But that, that, so does that mean he's not real? You know, and just those typical conversations we've all had with our kids. <clears throat> And, and I just get this feeling from these conversations with Drake that he's like, well, if I could just see him, that'd be fine. And I just want to hear with Philip. If I could just see him one time, that's all I need, and everything will be good. Well, what do you mean everything will be good? What would be enough? Is Philip saying that it would be, that would be enough miracles to convince Philip? You won't have to do any more miracles. Just show me the Father, and that'll convince me Convince me of what? I don't know. Is he saying it would be enough evidence to, to simply comfort them? Because remember the context, don't let your heart be troubled. And Philip's like, hey, I got an idea of how my heart to not be troubled. Let me see the Father and they won't be troubled. That's enough for me. Or is he saying what is enough? It's, it's enough evidence to assure me, Philip, that my preconceived ideas is correct. And that my preconceived idea of you being the Messiah, doing this earthly kingdom is correct. And all of this weird talk about dying, about sending Judas out, about, you know, the end, the, the time has come, you're leaving to go prepare something, you're coming. If you just show me the Father, then that will be enough to comfort me to know that what we already had in mind about you is still going to happen. See, I tend to think that might be what Philip is really looking for. He's looking for confirmation that his preconceived concept, his preconceived um, uh, expectation of the Messiah is going to be met. Just show us the Father and we'll be okay with all this death talk, this leaving and coming back talk. Just show us the Father and we'll be reassured that you are the Messiah and soon enough we'll be free from Rome, we'll be free and we'll be on the 
geopolitical power that we once were. Just show us the Father. That's enough. So what does Jesus say? I love it. He says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Just show me the Father, right? Just show me the Father. Have I been so long with you that you have not come to know me? Well, now who's talking? Is it Jesus or is it the Father talking? Who's talking here? And I'm saying to you, it doesn't matter because what Jesus is going to explain is that he and the Father are what? One. Now that's very difficult for my finite mind to understand that Jesus and the Father are one. Let me ask you a question. I didn't think I was going to get into this, but let me just throw it out there. When we all die, it all fades to black and we're in heaven, however that looks, whatever that feels like, whatever that experience is, and we see whatever the pearly gates, we see the streets of gold, whatever that is. I I honestly don't know exactly how it's all going to be set up, and that's good that I don't. Do you expect to see three thrones? A throne for the Father, a throne for the Son, and a throne for the Holy Spirit? See, I would say most of my life, I would say, well, of course, sure. It's God the Father, God the Son, three thrones. But what would that be called? Polytheism. Three gods. But the scriptures are clear that God is what? One. So I don't think there's going to be the Father's throne, the Son's throne, and the Holy Spirit's throne, because they are one, yet distinct in three persons. Explain that to a six-year-old. I don't even know if I can wrap that in my own head. But the point simply is that I think I, can't say you, but I know I have created more division between the persons of of the Godhead than probably really are there. Because Jesus is so clear here in stating to Philip, I have been with you so long and yet you don't know who I am. But Philip was asking about the Father. And Jesus is saying, you don't know me. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, let me make sure I got my notes here. It was enough. Um, okay. And so, um, uh, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To me, this has got to be one of the clearest statements that Jesus makes. He's already made a few in John, but this is the clearest statement that Jesus claims to be one and equal with the Father. And I have heard it, and I can't understand it, where people say Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. Did Jesus never claim to be God? Obviously, they've never read the book of what? John. I mean, it's from the beginning to the end. It has been here. Can you imagine the sadness, perhaps even the grieved spirit that Jesus has when he hears Philip say this? Just show us the Father. Can you just get out of the way for a second and just show us the real deal? And he says, you have not come to know me. What is Jesus saying? I think he's saying that he, Jesus, is the physical embodiment of God The Father, God the Son, is as God, as God the Father. What is the different heartbeat between the Father and the Son? What is the different desire between the Son and the Spirit? 
See, we tend, I, I should say, tend to try to create three offices, almost three gods, but they are not. They're as one as one gets, manifesting themselves in a variety of ways, three to be specific. But let's just see how closely related Jesus, not me, because I've gotten this wrong, I think, most of my life, but how closely related Jesus connects himself to the Father and himself to the Holy Spirit. Look at this. He says, uh, do, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? There's no separation. Where does the Father end and the Son begin? Where does the Son stop and the Father begin? Now, are they distinguishable? I think you have to say yes. But are they inseparable? Absolutely not. In fact, I didn't put this on the screen, but in second, one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes that God, talking about the Father, was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them any longer. So where was God the Father when Jesus the Son was hanging on the cross? He was in him. He was with him. The death of the Son was the death of the Father in that sense. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Do you not believe that I am the perfect representation in bodily form of the Father to you? The words that I say to you, I, Jesus, I don't speak on my own initiative, but it's the Father abiding. This word abiding is going to come in a lot in chapter 15, and it's taken completely out of context, abiding. We'll get to that in chapter 15. We're still in 14. But the Father abiding in me does his works. So Jesus is the conduit, if you will, through which the Father is doing his works. So Philip, if you have known me, you've known the Father because what I'm doing, my body, what the words that I'm saying are the very words and the very actions of the Father. Now this is revolute, re, revolute, this is big for these guys. They don't get it. They still don't get it. They're not going to get it for another 50 days when the Holy Spirit comes into them. But this is radical because they're actually looking at in bodily form the very heartbeat of the Father. And what's also kind of crazy about Philip asking about seeing the Father is what do we know from the law about beholding with your very eye the Father? Yeah, death. Death. No one can behold His glory and live. And so Philip, it's almost like just a He's throwing his hands up like, I just give up. Just show us the Father. Let the chips fall where they fall. We're tired of all this back and forth. Are you really going to set this kingdom up or not? What do they lack in essence? What do the disciples lack? They lack faith. They're not believing Jesus. And what did Jesus say in chapter 12 was the commandment that God the Father had given him to communicate. Believe. Believe. Believe the word that he has been speaking. 
And so Jesus reminds them of this commandment this, that was given in, verse, in chapter 12, the same dinner, just a few paragraphs before. In verse 11, he reminds them, this is how this works, guys. Believe me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you don't believe me for the words that I'm saying, then believe because of the works themselves, the miracles, the actions, the feedings of the 5,000. I hear Jesus saying, do you really think that that was just some guy doing this? Some earthly Messiah feeding these 5,000 people? Do you really think it was just some earthly Messiah turning water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead? You guys saw all this. If you don't believe me just because of the words I'm saying, the character of my actions, of, of, of me and my, my, uh, my uh, the integrity, then believe the works themselves. This is not from some man alone, but the Father living in me. And this is the commandment that Jesus starts reiterating over and over, beginning in chapter 12. It's belief. You believe in chapter 12. Believe the commandment that the Father gave me, that I give you, that you must believe that I am, I am He, that I believe that I am, is how He puts it. Believe, believe, believe. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So what is the key? He's asking what? Let me see the Father. And Jesus is saying, listen, seeing the Father, seeing this one day is only going to come by believing this now. You either believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that we are one and you see me, you've seen the Father. This is, I am the true representation of the Father. How does Paul put it in Colossians chapter one? He says that the Son, Jesus, was a perfect image, a stamp, an image of the Father for us to behold. And so to see the image, to see the Son, it's to see the Father. Either you believe in me and the works that I do, and if you do, greater works than these he, the Father, will do. Because I'm going back to the Father. What is Jesus getting into? What does he mean? How could these guys, if they just believe him... How will these guys do even greater works than what Jesus has done? What have they seen Jesus do? I said a few of them a second ago. What was the first miracle Brandon spoke of months ago? Water into wine. They're going to do something better than that? Is there a rum and coke or something? Like, what's even better than water to wine? They're going, I said the 5,000. The resurrection of Lazarus. These guys are going to do things even greater than what Jesus has done? What could this possibly be? Well, we know that Peter, in the book of Acts, he raised a lady named Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, from the dead. But is that greater than what Jesus did? Jesus raised several people from the dead. So how could that be greater 
that's kind of equal. Pete, uh, John saw a revelation of how everything from the beginning to the end was all about Jesus. And he wrote it down in this book that we call the book of the Revelation. How Jesus is, it's all about him from creation to the end. That Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's all about him. That's a pretty amazing feat for John to see. But didn't Jesus take John up to a mountain and pulled back his earthly skin and the glory of God shone through. I mean, the revelation that John received wasn't greater than the Mount of Transfiguration. Philip, hey, Philip was transported in the book of Acts, it seems. He was in one place and then he saw the chariot. He went and saw the Ethiopian eunuch and he shared the scripture. He baptized him. And then he like Jordy LaForged over to some other place in the Mediterranean. We don't know, I mean, what that really was. He just vanished. He was somewhere else. That's pretty cool. But the risen Jesus did what? He just walked through walls and just showed up in rooms that were through doors that were what? Locked. So what does he mean you're going to do greater works than I'm doing? Seems like at least these cool things that the disciples did or at least what? Equal, not really greater. So I don't know if that's what he's talking about. Just simply raising dead, feeding people who are hungry, etc. I think Jesus is talking about something infinitely greater than being teleported across the Mediterranean Sea or raising Tabitha from the dead. Here's what I think Jesus is talking about. Greater works than these. What happened to Lazarus after he was raised from the dead? Several years later, I don't know how many, he what? He died again. Lazarus is not still with us. That'd be pretty radical. He's not still with us. The feeding of the 5,000, awesome. But the next day there were what? hungry. The water to wine, it ran out at two. I think that Jesus is talking about something eternally greater, eternally eternal when he talks about greater works. If you believe, if you are in on this, if you become a part of this thing, through what? Through faith, even greater things you're going to be a part of. And what are those greater things? I believe that he's talking about the restoration of the very Holy Spirit into the very hearts of dead, spiritually dead man. That's what was lost in the garden, however many generations before. Adam continued to live, but he died spiritually when the life of God left him because of sin. And what I hear Jesus saying is, you guys, if you're a part, if you believe what's happening, that I'm in the Father, that he is in me, that all this is the Father. If you believe the true heart of the Father, it's for the world, it's for you, not against you. If you believe the truth of who I really am, the embodiment of the Father himself, then you are going to be a part of and even enact through the message of this good news that you're going to tell other people, you are going to witness the restoration of the Holy Spirit into the life of men. Something that has never happened. Something David cried for. Something he, he, he wrote chapters in the book of Psalms about. 
that he never experienced. Jesus might be talking about some of these physical things that were awesome that the disciples did. And if that's all Jesus is talking about, that's totally okay with me. I'm not going to get upset with Jesus. But I really believe that the context seems something greater. Keep reading. He says, commandment number two. Or, uh, not commandment number two. He reminds them of the commandments he's given them. Uh, that's, oh, I skipped. Whatever you ask in my Father's name, that will be done. So the Father may be glorified in the Son. So this asking about this stuff. Sorry. I, so, so if I, okay, ask anything. I got ahead of myself. Sorry. I will do it. Do what? This is the big stuff that we're talking about. Is it just raising Dorcas? Is it just, you know, uh, being teleported? What is this anything that he's talking about? Sorry, I skipped those. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what are the commandments? See, this is one of the two verses in chapter 14 that can be pulled out of context and just totally ruin a new covenant believer. Because if you take this verse, I promise you, because it was this way in my life for years. If you take this verse and go to any church in America and preach this verse, just read this verse. What are the vast majority of Christians naturally, religiously minded folk, Christian or not, naturally going to think of is the definition of commandments. At least the 10. At least that. Maybe even more than that. Like something about shellfish and about, you know, wearing linen and all this sort of stuff. It might be even more, but at least they're going to think about the 10 commandments. Naturally. So this is one of the greatest misinterpreted verses because it's taken out of context. But what has Jesus in this same dinner, let's don't take it out of context, in this dinner, what are so far the two commandments that, and he calls them commandments that he gives them? Chapter 12, be, be, well, chapter 12 is believe, then chapter 13 is love. So he just reiterated believe a second ago. He said, believe that I'm in the Father, that he's in me. If you believe this, you're going to see this. You're going to be a part of this. So he's reiterated the belief part. And here he reiterates the love part. He says, if you love me, well, how do we even learn how to love him? Because, and love each other. And that's in verse chapter 13, where he says, love one another as I have what? Loved you. So as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that the only way for us to love, for me to love Craig as Christ loves me, is I've got to wrestle with how much Christ loves me. So what I hear Jesus saying, if you really are wanting to be a part of this, if you really desire to express love to me, then you're going to do these two things. You're going to believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And you are going to wrestle with how much I love you. And that's going to express itself through a love for each other supernaturally. That's how you love me. It's not by your dedication, your number of times you go into a building and put money into a box and all this sort of stuff. That's it. Those are his commands in this dinner that he is saying in this context. We believe him and we wrestle with how much he loves us. And that's true love. So I'm submitting to you that in this conversation, the disciples are not struggling with keeping Sabbath. They already are committed to that. They're Jews. They're not struggling with, should we commit adultery or not commit adultery or coveting or not coveting? Should we do these or not do these things? They are Jews, 
Paul calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. They are ones who are dedicated to the Mosaic law. They're not struggling with believing whether the Mosaic law is, is binding on their lives or not. What are they struggling with? Ask Philip. What are you really struggling with, Philip? What are you really struggling with? Judas, not the Iscariot, but the other one next week is going to ask a question to show what he's really struggling with. There were two Judases as disciples. That would be really bad to be the non-Iscariot one and be named Judas, but such is life. What were they struggling with? Believing the Ten Commandments? Of course not. They were struggling with believing that God the Father loved them with an everlasting love. And Jesus is saying, you, you believe these things, that's true love. You keep those commandments, that is how you express your love for me, by believing me and wrestling forever with how much I truly love you. It is this belief. So in other words, here's true love. True love, if we want to love Jesus, if the disciples want to love Jesus, true love is believing that he loves them. It is this belief that restores the Holy Spirit to man. Jesus' death, as we talk about, and we're going to keep talking about forever, it ended, it removed all sin for all time for all people. But it is our individual faith in him that restores the life of the Holy Spirit into us, thus saving us. And I believe that this is the greater works that Jesus is talking about they're going to be a part of. You are going to be a part of the inauguration of a new covenant where a whole new creation is going to be born and you're going to be the first ones into it on the day of Pentecost in 50 some days. That's the greater works. Well, how do you know, Walt? How do you know that Jesus is this greater works, this greater stuff that they could ask anything about this greater work and it's going to happen? How do you know that that's what Jesus is talking about? And not, you know, again, raising dead or speaking, you know, I want a Ferrari. And you ask it in Jesus' name, it's going to be given to you. you know, how do you know that it's not earthly stuff? How do you know it's this life of Christ and the Holy Spirit invading into a dead heart? How do you know it, that's the greater thing? Because that's what he keeps talking about. He doesn't once mention a Rolls Royce. He doesn't once mention a Rolex watch about these greater things you just ask and it's going to be yours. He continues to talk about the life of the Holy Spirit entering into man. So just read the context. It's really simple. I will ask the Father. You believe? And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask the Father. Where is the Father? He's in the Son. And the Son is in Him. Such unity and oneness. And He will give you another helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, which He details in chapter 16. We'll get to that. That He, the Holy Spirit, may be with you, how long? Forever. Now, how is that possible? Ask Adam, hey, is that spirit of life in you forever, Adam? And he would say, uh, no, because as soon as I sinned, it departed. I died spiritually. So how can the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, be in us now forever? Because what has been removed? All sin for all time for all people. It's just that simple. And so since God is no longer counting sins, when we sin, and we do, at least I do, 
then that sin is not, does not enter God's records because he's already accounted for it fully in his very own son on the cross. And so the Holy Spirit can live in us forever because it's like a quarantine. There's a separation that has occurred. Paul calls it a circumcision of the spirit, the inner man from the outer man. And there is the sin that happens still that reigns in this mortal body can never penetrate into the new heart, the new man. But the reality of our new heart the new life that we have in Christ, as our mind is set on it, as Paul talks about in his letters, the life of Christ within continuously is exuded out through these mortal bodies. It's beautiful. But he will be in us forever. Now, let's go back. I've got to f- go faster because we've kind of got bogged down. Let's go back to the, what we looked at last week. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Who's the I? The I am there you may be also. Who's talking? Jesus. Now Jesus says that this helper is going to come. And this helper is going to be with you forever. So which is it? Wait a second. We got schizophrenia going on here? What's dementia? You just said you're going to be, we're going to be with you. Now you're saying the helper is going to be with you. And the answer is yes. Yes. See, I, like you, So don't look down on me. We've just created too much division, too much separation between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. Manifesting, showing themselves in a variety of different ways. A Son, a Father, and a Spirit. But they are one. So for the Holy Spirit to be in us is for Jesus to be in us. For Jesus to be in us is for who to be in us? The Father. Jesus says, I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. We're mixed together as one. And so... uh, Verse 17, that is, and he defines who the helper is, the spirit of truth. Again, verse 6, Jesus called himself the what? The truth. So are you the truth or is that spirit the truth? Yes. We. And in fact, we'll get to it in chapter 17. Jesus clarifies all this for us. He says, may they pointing to his disciples and to those who believe after, may they be in us and us in them. That's the only time in all the scripture that I know of that the Godhead is referred to in a plural pronoun, us. So cool. Now, does it mean there's three gods? No, there's one. But it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit communing with each other. It's beautiful. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive Because it does not see him nor know him, but you know him because he abides with you. Well, who's abiding with these disciples right now? It's Jesus. It's not the spirit yet because the spirit, he says, I have to leave so that I can send the spirit. So the spirit of truth is abiding with you now. But soon, how soon? About 50 days come Pentecost will be where? In you. So who's in me? Is it the Spirit? Is it the Son? Is it the Father? The answer is yes. That's so cool to me. Because now, and I've got a few more verses, but here's kind of the big deal. Now my opening thought of the Spirit, the Son, and that not able to really kind of get close to Father, that image is totally what? eradicated. 
because he has done a work of cleansing me of all my sin and by faith in him, he prepared a place for him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to now abide in me and in you. If we believe, if we receive, I, I just want to prove, I say prove, I just want to hammer this point just a little bit further real quickly. Back in chapter one, I know that was a long time ago when we went through chapter one, but John made this statement, John the writer, the, 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 the disciple. He said, he who, talking about the son, but as many as received him, the son, became sons of God. But to those who did not receive him, they did not become sons of God. So John is talking about receiving Jesus, right? And Jesus is here talking about the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. See, even in this, Jesus is saying you're receiving the same thing. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Let us not compartmentalize them like we have done, like I have done for so long. John says in the beginning, you receive the Son. Jesus here says you're receiving the Spirit. So which is it? Yes, you're receiving Him, all of Him. And He will be in you as we get to know Him in the person of the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But I thought the Holy Spirit was coming to me. So who is it? I think we're getting, I think we're picking up on this. It is him. He. Now, Jesus has equated himself with the father. He told Philip, really? I've been with you so long and you don't know the father. If you, if you know me, you know the father. How long have I been with you, Philip? So he's equated himself with the father clearly already. And now he's equating himself with whom? Who? Who? Whom? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is making a claim that he's equal with the Father. He's one with the Father. Now he's making claims that he is equal, one with the Holy Spirit. So who's in me? Well, see, theologians, which unfortunately I was trained by, would say that God the Father is the one in heaven. God the Son is the one who came to earth for 30-some years and he returned back to this place of heaven and he's sitting at his right hand. But God the Spirit is the one who now lives and abides in those of us who believe in him. Now, is that false? I mean, I don't think we're going to like, you know, write a blog about the error of that statement. But what does that lead us to think? How many thrones? Three. You got the Father's throne, the Son's throne, and the Holy Spirit's throne that's kind of absent right now because He's not there, He's here, and then one day we'll all get back up there once it's all said and done. But that's not at all what we're, getting Jesus, we're hearing from Jesus. He says, after a little while, how long? A little while, like a few days, like a few hours, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live you also, you will live also. So he is telling them that in his resurrection, which they're not, they're not, they're not computing. They're, they're still remember like a few days before James and John, they were asking, Hey, when you start your earthly kingdom, can we have good seats? Can, can we be on the right and the left? When this, they're completely clueless about a resurrection from dead and a whole spiritual kingdom that is about to come in. But Jesus is saying, you'll see me. They won't see me. 
because I'm going to be gone. I'm going to ascend back to the Father, but you will. You will see me forever because I will be alive in you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now, this is where it gets radical and it gets personal. Now, Jesus has not just been saying he and the Father are in each other and that he's also the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in with each other. But now he's saying that you, you yourself, in 2019 now, he is in you and you are in him. Let that sink in. We've heard this a bunch. But let that sink in to a first century Jewish fisherman who probably was um, expelled from his first desire, what would you call it, your your first request for rabbinical school. He wanted to sit under Haliel or Gamaliel or one of the other famous uh, uh, rabbis, but nobody picked him. And so he went back to his father's fishing uh, company up in Galilee. And then along comes this guy who says, hey, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. And he follows him. And now he's hearing this guy, this rabbi, this Jesus say, The day will come when the Father will be in you. I will be in you, and you will be in me. This is revolutionary. This is unheard of. How can this be? They don't get it. They don't know. But he's saying, once it happens, then you'll know. And that's exactly what happens come Pentecost. They didn't understand it fully, completely. And I have to confess with you. It's been 2,000 years. I don't fully comprehend it. And that's a good thing. Because if we can uh, fully understand the exact nature of God himself who abides in us and that relationship, then that's a pretty small God. So it's a good thing. What does James Barron say? If, If there's not a level of how can these things be in our Christianity, then we probably don't have true Christianity. How can this be? In the last verse, he says, he who has my commandments, which commandments? I'm suggesting to you, I could be wrong, you know, but I'm suggesting in this conversation, the two commandments he's given them is believe that he is in the Father and the Father's in him and love one another as he has loved us. So wrestling with his love for us. He who has my commandments and keeps them, does them, I think the apostles later, I forget who it is, says, obey the gospel. We must obey the gospel. I think this is what he's talking about. This is the obeying the gospel. It's believing and it's receiving this love that God has for them. Um, And keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him. And I will disclose myself to him. In this last little verse, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one beautiful little picture. He will be loved by my Father. I will love him, the Son. And I will disclose myself to him. We know in just one more, two more chapters, in chapter 16, that Jesus dis- describes the role of the Holy Spirit is to come into us, to reveal to us, to make known to us, to disclose to us everything that the Son has, because it's now yours. So the Father's what? Whoa. 
We're loved by him as the same as we're loved by the son and as the same as obviously there's a love from the Holy Spirit because he's revealing to us the true nature of what? This love that he has towards us. So I believe that this right here, if you want to make we got to roll this down into a bumper sticker somewhere. It's a bit long. You've got to have like an old Cadillac for that to fit. But I believe that that right there is the Christian walk. He who loves me, and how does that love happen? It's by believing and receiving his love for him. Will be loved by my father. Will, I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. That to me is the Christian walk receiving, coming to terms with the depth of the Father's love, the Son's love, and the Holy Spirit revealing more to us of who He truly is. His affections, His desires, His nature, Him. Because we are now where? In Him. Of Him. Born of Him. Adam is no longer our origin. For we have been born from the very Spirit of God Himself. So our journey marker, the best as I can try to summarize that, it's simple. To know Jesus, it is to know the Father. To know Him. Because see, that's, that's one of the purposes why He sent Jesus. Why He clothed Himself in flesh. Is to reveal Himself, who He is, His nature to humanity. You know me, you know the Father. So what do we know about Jesus? And he's the one who talked with the woman at the well when nobody else would. What do we know about Jesus? He's the one who picked the woman caught in adultery up and says, neither do I condemn you. What do we know about Jesus? He's the one that threw over the money changers and the people who were turning the, the, the true purpose of the temple into some sort of den of thieves and of robbers because they were trying to monopolize or, or, or monetize you know, this whole system of, of, of intimacy with God through making money and through ripping off people through temple tax and all this sort of stuff. What do we know of Jesus? He's the one who laid his life down on a cross. No one took his life from him. He laid his life down for us. What we know about Jesus, we know about the Father. So this system that I develop, that maybe you develop of we know the Spirit. He's there to encourage us, to comfort us, to lead us, to help us. We know the Son. Man, He, he, he gave His life for us. But the Father, whew, gosh, I just don't want to get caught. I just don't want to be alone with Him. Unless Jesus is there. And then He can kind of stand in between us. That's hogwash. There's a theological term for that. It's called baloney. It's what it is. It's ridiculous. Because to know Jesus is to know the Father. Do you know the Father? We can say yes, and we can say we desire more. Because it's a never-ending journey to get to know Him and His love for us. Some guys teach that all of eternity is getting to know Him more and more and more. I don't know if that's true or not. But what I do know is He does not want us to live in fear he, want us, he wants us to live in a reality of who He truly is, and we get to know who He is by getting to know who His Son is. So Judas asks a question, very next verse. 
um, that just continues to show they don't get it, that they're struggling to understand. And Jesus is patient with them. He stays on course. But I want us to walk out of here this morning at least with a renewed vision, a renewed thought to comprehend that there is no separation in the the affections of the Father towards us and the affections of Jesus towards us, for they are one in the same. For it was God who was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting our trespasses against us. Any uh, closing thoughts or comments or uh, questions or testimonials or anything before we, uh, before we take off? Yeah. Steve? I think I, I think I know what you're gonna say, but can you help me understand uh, at Jesus passing uh, the scripture that says and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. How, how does that yeah. jive with what you were talking about today? Right. So I, I think it can either uh, mean that, um, that there's a, 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 a two thrones, like, you know, I was talking about. It could, could mean that. And again, I'm not going to write a, a blog post, you know, saying that this is, you know, of the devil, right? But I think it more is speaking of the, uh, the, the honor and the glory of the Son who was given a name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee shall bow. That Because remember, the person of Jesus was hidden from all eternity past. No, nowhere in, in, the, in the history of yesterday before his, his uh, death and resurrection did anyone even know that there was a son, that there was a second person of the Godhead. They knew there was a Holy Spirit because he came and he did stuff with you know, Saul and, and whatnot, but nobody knew that there was a son, a, a God in flesh that would come. And so when that came, even, even the devil, you've heard me say this before, even the devil, when he was revealed that God had a son at the baptism of Jesus, you know, the voice came from heaven and said, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. The very next conversation with Jesus was with the devil who said, wait a minute. If you really are the son of God, then, because I think the devil was clueless about this for all of eternity past. It was hidden so that, and then now he is, his, his name has been elevated so that God is now not just known as the one who, you know, uh, uh, turned what's his name into toast for touching the, the, the ark, but now God is known as Yahshua, the one who saves. And that name, that, that person is sitting at the right hand representing who God truly is to all of humanity. So whether it's a physical, again, I'm not going to like, again, write a blog post about it or if it is communicating to us that this is the true God, the one who died for us, who rose. God has a, quote, new name, and it is Savior, which is what Yahshua means in the Hebrew. It is Savior. It is Jesus, um, which is not what he was known for. That's what I started off with at the beginning. What was he known for? He was known. There was not a God save us mentality. It was a you live up to the expectations, then he will give you these blessings. And if you don't, then he will give you these curses. It was a very karma sort of mentality because that's how the law was established. And so, uh, so 
But I could be dead wrong. I could be absolutely dead wrong. But I, it's one of those two things. I just, if you start putting multiple thrones up there, then you have multiple gods and you don't have monotheism. You have polytheism. And that certainly isn't, that certainly doesn't judge. And that's one of the reasons why the Jewish culture rejected Christianity outrightly because of a misconception that there's three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in which there wasn't. And we can get into the error of how when Constantine combined Christianity with paganism, and that's where you got all this stuff called um, uh, synchronism, where he tried to synchronize Christianity, a monotheism, with a lot of the pagan polytheistic religions to try to appease you know the masses and you get crazy stuff like praying to saints in order to have your prayers answered where is that in the scripture that's that's from Constantine trying to merge these two opposing concepts and I think the polytheistic idea of a separate father a separate son and a separate Holy Spirit comes from that as well where they are three persons but they are one not to be as divided as uh, certainly as I have in my past, if that makes sense. So that's what I would answer to that. No, and I, I think that's kind of what I was expecting to hear. Um, and I also think of in terms of today when, you know, an executive says, oh, she is, she is my right hand. Mm-hmm. It means that she is quite almost literally an extension of me. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I yeah. look at operating on my behalf, right. you know, et cetera. Right, right yeah. into the Father. Um, the other thing, and maybe I slightly misheard this a good while ago, but you talked about um, Jesus maybe referring to us, meaning God the Father. Did you say or did I miss something that that was the only time that uh, the phrase us is used and if so what about in Genesis when God says yeah. uh, let us make man in our image yes yeah. uh, so that, that so I should say in the gospels in Jesus' okay. words in the gospels that's the only time I know of that he refers to us in that sense that yeah right so, so yeah so and we'll get into that in chapter 17 in, in detail. Okay. So if we don't cover it between now and then, let's make sure we cover that thing because it's radical. I mean, yeah. it is it is a total equation. Well, I won't get into it because 17 is amazing. Yes, sir. So um, I, I appreciate the question. I'm going to make one comment of something that's helped me. And I don't know the book of Revelation, whatever. But in the fourth chapter, John says he gets called up into the heaven and he said, I saw one setting on the throne. Yeah. Right. There you go. So it brings clarity, right? Yeah, John that's good. It's really brought up into the heavens and really sees the throne. There's only one throne. Because I've often thought the same thing. Well, Jesus says he's on the right hand of God. So why did John see two thrones? Yeah, right, at least. that's right. Yeah, there you go. Great word. He saw one throne. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Beautiful. So I think it's the position of, like we were saying, the manifestation of, as opposed to the physical. Because it's so easy for us to get into polytheism and not realize it. And we've got to be very, very careful with that. Uh, Craig? Is, it, is he talking about the same one? Um, is it in Hebrews where it, like, he was writing that now that the work is done, Jesus is sitting? Right. Does he say they're seated at the right hand? Or is, it, or is that more implying like 
not even just Christ's work is done, but like God's work. The fulfillment of yeah. the Godhead's like purpose right. is now yeah. all resting. Or yeah, I, um, I don't know. Uh, a, a Google search could probably yeah. answer that faster than my Rolodex of scriptures, you know. But there certainly are, uh, what, where they are exactly, I, I can't pull them out, but there certainly are statements. Uh, I mean, Philippians chapter 2, I think, is a, an example where every, you know, where it talks about Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And I think that is a very human way, because Paul several times he says, you know, I have to write to you guys, you know, with this, this in human terms, because you can't understand in spiritual terms. So he says that several times. And so the concept of, of the right hand um, is a human term that we can easily interpret as, a, you know, a second throne, you know, sort of a concept. But I think it has to be more uh, representative of the oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where they together are saying, what Jesus has now accomplished is the uh, accomplished on behalf of the, the, the fullness of God. So that authority being at the right hand, if you will. Um, because Paul also says in like Ephesians that we're seated in the heavenly realm. So where are we? Well, Jesus says that we're in him and he's in us. So it's, again, it's very easy for our finite thinking of thinking, okay, chair, sit, you know, you're sitting there and like, there's all these different chairs. But as Jesus talks about it and Paul and the other apostles, there is a oneness. And when we get to 17, it's just super, super clear. May they be in us as we are in each other. So how is God, the Father, and the Son, one. Well, they are as one as one gets. And the whole point of the death and resurrection was so that man can now be one with them as they are one with each other. Amazing. Uh, but that's not multiple chairs. That's not even like, where's your mansion? Where's my mansion? I think our concept of heaven is kind of skewed as well from church history as opposed to just what the scriptures sort of reveal about it. That's why I'm more willing to say, I don't know what that's going to look like than I am to say this is exactly what it looks like here's the floor there is the blueprint of heaven based upon you know something that Zachariah said and you know all this sort of silliness that we get out there on in Christianity yes sir you done all right is that a motion to adjourn <laughs> yeah Talking about who he comes back or the end of time or whatever, uh-huh. where he says nobody knows but the Father. Even yeah. the Son doesn't know. So I kind of wondered, okay, so how can he be? Yeah. There one, and we talk about them being, let's say, one, the oneness. How can? That's God a great question. Yeah, and I would I would be lying to say that I know exactly what that means, other than there are a, there is a distinct uniqueness between the persons, the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But let us not distinguish them so much that we create three gods. And so there can be the, 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 um, because what we hear Jesus even saying is the works that I'm doing, it's not even my works. It's the father in me working these works. The words that I say, it's the father's words in me. So he can say in that same frame, uh, uh, same frame, even the time at which this return happens, I, I, the son, it's not up to the son. The father alone knows. And when he 
reveals that to me, I'll let you know. It's sort of a deal, kind of like with everything else. And on a side note, totally unrelated, if you read that in context in Mark or in Matthew, I don't think he's talking about thousands of years down the road. I think he's talking about three days. The son doesn't know. But I mean, not, not, not three days, because um, he, knew, he knew three days. But um, the, he's talking about the time of the temple. Because the, the whole context, gosh, I'm getting on a rabbit trail here. The whole context of that conversation was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They're saying, look at the buildings. Aren't they beautiful? And in that context, he says, not a stone will be left on each other. When is this going to happen? Only the father knows. The son doesn't know when, when this will, will happen. That's the context. It, and what, when did that happen? That happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and totally destroyed Jerusalem. So that even that statement, and I'm just going to, I'm not, again, I'm not writing blogs on this. I'm not like coming to a position on this. But even that statement of the son doesn't know when these things are going to happen, only the father, that might actually have referred to something that happened in 70 A.D. and not in his second coming that, you know, we've sort of lumped that in with. A lot of church historians have done that. And so we just kind of pick up what other people say without reading the actual context of the scriptures. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. But very possible. But I know the context is the tearing down. But he also says that tear this temple down and it'll be restored in three days. So it, 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 it is, uh, there's more, um, I think we would greatly benefit if we read less commentaries and just read the scriptures and let the Holy Spirit who was there to reveal Jesus to us and we went trusted him. Because the commentaries mess us up. You listening to me and then saying, that's what I'm going to believe, messes you up. Because I am not your teacher. Call no man your teacher. But the Holy Spirit who lives in you, Jesus says. Yes, sir. I think we also have to be mindful that God had to send Christ here. Mm-hmm. He couldn't come here. I mean, Moses proved that. Yeah, that's right. So that's right. Had, and even though maybe, a, what in my mind, maybe a separation, still, mm-hmm. God could not come here because there would be sin. And yeah. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And so that's why he had to do what he did. Yeah. 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 That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yes, sir. I was also thinking about that in terms of when Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been taught that it's because he was carrying the sins of the world and God could not look on him in that moment. Yeah. Which is what I've been, I've heard too, I've taught that, you know, as well. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But I also know, like Paul says, that God was in Christ Jesus in that moment, reconciling the world to himself. And so <clears throat> the, that statement is actually a quote from, from the Psalms. And I think it's best, and I don't know the answer to this, but I think the answer has got to be found going back into the Psalms and seeing what was it, if it was David that wrote that, I'm not exactly sure who wrote that, what was the context surrounding that when that was stated in the Psalms? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Messiah, remember, he is the seed of David. He is, he is uh, as David was a man after God's own heart, the Messiah would come in his, in his lineage and would fulfill what David was enable, unable to fulfill. And that is obviously righteousness and eternal uh, a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. David could have done it, but David was a man, so he couldn't do it. 
So now Jesus came as the seed of David, coming from David, which, which Jesus talks to the Pharisees about. It just blows their mind. How can David call his own descendant my Lord? And they're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so beautiful. But he came as the descendant of David to do what David couldn't do. And so he's quoting David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? I honestly, I would lie to tell you if I know exactly the truth. But I, I think it has more to do with that fulfillment of what David couldn't do. And David was unable, unable to do because he was a man. But, God, but Jesus was a man, but he was a God man. And so he was able to do even better. So it's not an answer, but that's a, a pointing in a direction. I think we've got to go back to the Psalms to better understand what was happening then. And it might just be the simple, yeah, in that moment, the father turned his back on the son, as we've kind of, you know, heard and taught. And, yeah, that's, and, and see, Hebrews says that it was in that and in the garden that he learned obedience, that Jesus, the son, learned obedience because he couldn't be our high priest without that ability to, to trust that the father was going to actually raise him from the dead three days later. It's, it's so much in the mind of God that we don't understand, but we can trust that he has it all figured out. And there's depths there that we'll never, never get it all. deep, yeah, especially with these minds. But which makes me just so enamored by the whole thing. Amen. Amen. And not in fear, but in comfort. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Great discussion, man. Great additions. All right. Well, let's pray and be closed with a word of prayer. Love you guys so much. Again, as I say often, don't ever take my word for anything. Uh, this is um, that's how we've gotten into this mess of Jesus plus all these other things by taking the word of a man at face value. Father, we just thank you for your presence forever in us. You in us, us in you. I love how Paul puts it in Colossians that our life is hidden with Christ, hidden in you. Safe and secure as we sing from all alarms. And I pray as we go out this week <clears throat> that any fear we have of you is simply eradicated by a revelation of your love towards us as evidenced in the person of Jesus Christ. You demonstrated your love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If that doesn't settle our fear of intimacy with you, nothing will. For perfect love cast out all fear. Father, I thank you for everyone who's here. I thank you for, I hope, the curiosity, the thinking that's happening in our minds, whether it's related to the Trinity, how that works, whether it's related to us being in you, you being in us, whatever it is, I pray that there is a curiosity, uh, an itch that desires to be scratched and we leave this place not with every answer, but with a great desire to get to know you better. Because as we get to know you, these answers come. Our souls are satisfied by you. Not by answers in a lecture, but by you. And so, Father, we thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.
Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.